Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's Friday. That means another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We'll talk about chocolate, soda, and of course, Thanksgiving on this episode. But we begin with Shake Shack as they report their third quarter earnings and they beat both on profit and revenue for the period. However, the news item that really grabbed headlines was the fact that they expanded their opening schedule for next year, pushing from 19 new locations to now 21 to 22. And although this is a modest increase, that seemed to be what a lot of news outlets were focused on. Yeah, let's talk about earnings and revenue for a little bit before we get to those growth prospects for 2017. Top line revenue for Shake Shack came in at $74.6 million for the third quarter, ended September 28th. $53.3 million is what they brought in during the same period in 2015. So quite a bit of a growth there in top line revenue. You see a 40% increase year over year and a beat against analyst expectations of $69 million in revenue. So they beat analyst expectations by 8% and they beat their metrics from last year by 40%. Of this total revenue, $71.9 million was from their restaurants. The rest was from licensing and outside income. They license a lot of their restaurants, their international locations, so they are bringing in a lot of revenue via that strategy. Net income for the company was more than doubled to $3.8 million or 15 cents per share from $1.5 million or 10 cents per share from 2015. Again, another beat against analyst expectations. Analysts were expecting 14 cents per share on the earnings per share side of things. Operating income also increased 17.5% to $9.2 million. So if you're looking at these numbers, you're seeing that Shake Shack is really a healthy company that is growing, albeit modestly from the revenue side of things. Same Shack sales as they call them, or same store sales as we call them, for the quarter rose 2.9%, due in part to their success of the chicken sandwich and other product innovations. There's a lot of fervor around the idea that they're going to keep innovating with these chicken items, and I think this is one of the reasons why they beat the Wall Street expectations of 1.7% same store sales. They reiterated full-year same store sales for the company, projecting an increase overall for the full fiscal year of four to five percent so this is really good if you compare this to other companies however this is the story of a company that has a lot of growth prospects built into it can they withstand these promises and these expectations for shake shack the most notable thing i think were the expectations we talked before we came on the air that wendy's showed same store sales increases of 1.4 percent and analyst expectations for Shake Shack, which is very much considered a growth company, were just 1.7%. Now, they did beat them pretty significantly, showing same-store sales at 2.9%. 
Still, the question remains for Shake Shack. Can they continue to maintain same-store sales growth while they grow their store footprint outward? Because they're not growing their store footprint all that quickly. And we've talked about on previous episodes that they may begin to feel pressure from other burger chains. Not only the fast casual burger chains and the likes of Five Guys, but other sit-down burger chains. We've mentioned Red Robin is kind of backing up in terms of market share, but you have Umami Burger and a number of other upstart companies that could be nibbling at the toes of Shake Shack once they get fully expanded. The other aspect that I see that might be a little bit dangerous for Shake Shack is the fact that a lot of their second-year locations aren't seeing the growth in same shack sales, again, as they call them, that you would expect from a company after opening up stores. Typically in the restaurant sector, it's not uncommon to see second year sales be a considerable increase over their first year sales and then kind of even out after that. But we're not really seeing that trend with the Shake Shack locations that have just opened up. Still, they are beating on revenue. They are beating on same store sales. And one thing that I want to touch on, they do have a number of product initiatives in the pipeline. It took so long for them to get their chicken shack rolled out into stores because of supply chain issues. But it seems as though they're getting the kinks in the system worked out. And this is enabling them to introduce new and different products. Again, according to the company, chicken sales were strong. But one of the things the company is going to continue to do is sell their limited time only bacon cheddar shack all the way through the first quarter so we've got a little while until they pull that off of shelves and what's more they've said that they're going to begin to sell a barbecue burger and a barbecue chicken shack near the end of that first quarter so they do have new product rollouts planned and it seems like their rollout is going to be a little bit more vigorous on these than it was on the chicken shack which longtime followers of shake shack will recall that they only rolled the chicken shacks out to a handful of stores sold out very very quickly and had trouble getting that supply chain moving on that front so it'll be interesting to see how they handle these new product rollouts but the bacon cheddar shack has been well received and it looks like they're set to continue selling that for at least another four months or so yeah also the salt and pepper honey chicken at three brooklyn shacks for a limited time were priced at 629 and the company said they had a great response from that the price point of that bacon cheddar shack like you had mentioned, was around $6.89. So I really like these price points for these new rollouts and this product innovation overall. The company also announced that they will be having their holiday shake promotion, which will start around now, mid-November, and go until the year's end. The different types of shakes they have will be pumpkin pie, chocolate peppermint, and a Christmas cookie, the same ones that they had last year. And they said they plan on, with a successful rollout this year, doing the same for next year. So a lot to see here as far as the way of product innovation. And as you said, they are growing the amount of locations they will have in the U.S. and internationally. They're opening 19 in 2016 versus the previous plans for 18. So a little bit of a beat there on their own expectations. And if you look at 2017, they're going to be opening 21 to 22 new locations. This is actually up from the 19 they were previously guiding for. However, the growth is going to be back-weighted to the back end of 2017. They said the majority of these openings are going to be at the latter half. But they said most of the leases have been signed already. So this gives a lot of analysts optimism that they have plans in place and they are doing this the right way. They aren't trying to rush into these new markets and these new regions, both 
domestically and internationally. Currently, they have 58 locations in the United States, 105 total if you include all of these licensed international locations. And they're also going to be looking to licensing in domestic airports. They want to have some licensing deals and some partnerships set up to where they can get people that are traveling from around the world the taste of Shake Shack, and they think that this really will build in some brand loyalty. I think the only downside to that is typically your price points are going to be a little bit higher. So if someone is trying Shake Shack for the first time and they're seeing maybe a 30 or 40% markup on a regularly priced item, they might think that that's the normal price point for a Shake Shack location. So that is the downside to that. But I think the strategy is there and that there is a lot of excitement around the brand considering the type of quality they offer in their restaurants. This is something they've been focused on for quite some time, and they really are also focused on customer service. They are rolling out and have rolled out a sort of pilot app called the Shake app. This allows people to order on their phones and mobile devices, and I think this is going to be one way they can compete going forward. You see a lot of product innovation through their competitors like Sonic. I think this is the way of the future, and they said they do need to meet the customers where they are at, meaning if they're at home and they don't really want to get out right away and they want to order from the convenience of their mobile devices, they should enable that capacity for them. I do want to finish off this segment talking a little bit about the growth prospects for Shake Shack. I know a lot of people and news outlets are excited about Shake Shack's growth prospects, but let's be honest here. This isn't necessarily explosive growth. Just saying you're going to open two or three more new locations next year than you opened this year doesn't really signify explosive growth, at least not the type that we're used to seeing from other burger outlets. We've talked about Freddy's Frozen Custard in the past and their truly explosive growth growing by dozens of locations year over year. And then, of course, Five Guys with all of their restaurants that they've got in the pipeline planned out over the next few years. So you do look at their lofty price-to-earnings ratio of 86 on the stock market and wonder if maybe they aren't a little bit overpriced just based on the growth prospects of the company and based on the growth prospects of the stock. And I do worry that even though their expansion has been well-managed, and they're very careful about where they're opening new locations. You can see that from the massive amount that they're bringing in from each individual location. Even still, you worry that eventually they're going to be crowded out of the market if they don't jump on certain markets, certain avenues, and certain places that are ripe for expansion immediately. So that is the one cautionary thing we'd be looking at from Shake Shack. Other than that, I think we're both in agreement that their product mix is good and their product innovation. It's good to see that they have some of their supply chain issues worked out and they're hitting research and development a little bit harder now than it seemed like they were doing two to three years ago. We'll move on to a company that is not a competitor of Shake Shack, Luby's Incorporated, the parent company of Luby's Cafeterias, Fuddruckers, and eight Cheeseburger in Paradise units and one Bob Luby Seafood Grill reported their fourth quarter results on Tuesday of last week. Restaurant sales for the company for their fourth quarter declined to $91.8 million 
from $115.4 million for the same period last year. This is a decline of about 20% or so. Luby's reported a loss of $7.8 million or 27 cents per share compared with income of $100,000 in the same quarter last year. You see that the fact that they were actually profitable last year and now they are having a much larger operating loss. Luby saw same store sales coming in at a neutral figure for the quarter. Fuddruckers decreased 0.8% and Cheeseburger and Paradise saw a 3.8% decrease in same store sales. I think one of the reasons for this was the company was seeing a decrease in traffic overall. Their only real bright spot was the fact that they could bring in traffic at their Luby's locations. The cafeteria really was bringing in traffic because of increased promotional activity. The company said that this really helped bring in people, but because of these sales, they saw a decrease in margins. And this is one of the reasons why you saw an increase in traffic by about 3.6%, yet you saw neutral same-store sales. So the ticket prices were suffering as a result. This is an interesting company because they really do offer several different types of concepts here in their portfolio. The eight cheeseburger in paradise units have been suffering for quite some time. They really don't have a niche planned out. But the company overall has been spending a lot of capital trying to reinvigorate the Fuddruckers locations. They're remodeling several locations, and they spent around $18 million so far this year in remodeling or improving current stores. And this is compared to the a little over $20 million they spent in 2015. What stood out to me most about this earnings call from Luby's, you talked about how they are a diverse company. I think where you're looking at the traffic declines at Fuddruckers and Cheeseburger in Paradise, these are areas that we've talked about, in fact, just a few minutes ago, being highly competitive areas with your casual or fast casual burger concepts. Fuddruckers, Cheeseburger, and Paradise both do approximately the same thing in terms of offering a wide array of meats, a wide array of burger styles, but they, they're not that differentiatable from a restaurant like Red Robin, and moreover, they don't necessarily stand out on quality. They are just that traditional family eatery. As far as Luby's is concerned, they are in a unique space themselves because they are a cafeteria-based restaurant, and there's not many of those on the market anymore. That's where you saw that increase in traffic by 3.6%, even though same-store sales were basically neutral because they were pushing so many deals for their customers to come in. Still, same-store sales for the year for all total locations were up 0.7%, and that's not a ton, but it's still an increase. Pappas said during their conference call that, and I quote, there are a number of economic events and indicators that are putting pressure on consumer confidence in this current environment. The market is very competitive in the choices to eat out. As I break down that quote, really there are two parts to it, and I think they're correct on the second part. The market is indeed very competitive in the choices to eat out, and that's what Leighton and I talk about constantly on this podcast. We're not in the middle of a so-called restaurant recession. It just so happens that there are more choices there. And so if you survey the same six companies today as you did five to ten years ago, of course you're going to see a dip in overall sales numbers because there are so many more choices, so many more options, and a lot of upstarts that maybe aren't publicly traded that we're not getting the data from here. We don't have a lot of numbers that suggest that people are ceasing eating at restaurants or instead cooking food at their house. 
It doesn't appear as though that's the case. But the key here for Lubies is they have to find a way to stand out in this environment. And right now, Fuddruckers, Cheeseburger in Paradise aren't standing out. And that's why you're seeing some shrink back of those locations. Cheeseburger in Paradise especially has been very fluid in where they're opening and then closing locations, trying to find that proper niche for that concept of restaurant. Meanwhile, Lubies, they are running these specials. They are running deals to get customers in the door. So maybe that's a way for them to differentiate themselves. But they have to find something above and beyond just those deals so that they can drive the ticket price up in the end. So I don't know that consumer confidence is lacking. I mean, you saw Luby's themselves post a 0.7% same-store sales increase, and we talk about a business like Shake Shack or even other concept businesses seeing rises in same-store sales. That suggests to me that it's not about consumer confidence. It's about a way to make your business stand out. And Luby's, as you mentioned, Leighton, is a little bit of an older concept, and their average age of an eater at Luby's has increased over the last several years. Fuddruckers and Cheeseburger in Paradise seems to be spinning their wheels in the mud. And the question going forward for them is not about external issues with consumer confidence, but what can they do to engineer a turnaround at Luby's after this loss? I don't really mind seeing an increased promotion, although it does cost a lot of money if you're running several commercials and you are taking the average price per ticket down a little bit because of that. You're trying to entice customers to get into your restaurants because of those lower price points that are for a limited time. But overall, it is going to be hard to have some product innovation here with all three or four of their concepts. I think if you look at their balance sheet, seeing the fact that they only have $1.3 million in cash for the year's end and $37 million in debt really is going to hamstring the company going forward if they want to entice new customers and to retain current customers. I think a lot of current customers are going to be seeing these steep discounts for for everyone coming in, and I think they're going to be expecting it for the long term. That is kind of the rut some restaurants get in when they try to price themselves out of the long-term sustainability aspect of their business. I feel as though this is one way to get customers, but I think actually the idea that spending $18.3 million on remodeling or improving current stores is maybe the way to go. If you make the environment a little bit better, people are going to recognize it as something new and spiffy in the market and maybe go to those restaurants for that improved environment overall. But this is something they are going to have to figure out and again, with limited funds to do so. Overall, they ended the year with 365 locations in total. Luby's Cafeteria owns 174 locations nationwide, and this does not include the licensed locations. So they have about 200 or so licensed locations, and the company actually does have a catering business, which provides about 5% of their total company revenue. So they are just all over the place here. When you're looking at the company in terms of the several concepts they have with Fuddruckers, Cheeseburger in Paradise, and the Seafood Grill, and then you have a catering operation on the side of it as well that they have to attend to. Overall, in the U.S., they are concentrated down in the south, southeast, and east regions, and I feel as though this could be a way to maybe grow if you're going to maybe see some growth in the Midwest or out west, but they have almost no locations out in the western part of the United States, and if you are looking for some potential growth opportunities in the long run, you could be looking over there for some opportunity. 
I think if you are looking to grow, if you are Lubies, you have to see the current stores produce positive same store sales, and that is something they are just not seeing. As for the stock, as we close out this new story, shares are trading around $4.10 a share, and they carry a $114 million market cap with a price-to-earnings ratio that, again, is negative because the company is operating with negative income. It is not looking good for Lubies overall. A couple of things I did want to note before we move on to the next story. There are nearly 100 Fuddruckers supposedly in their franchise pipeline, although we haven't seen a large push towards franchise openings for Fuddruckers. It seems as though progress is a little bit slow on that front. Overall, they opened three Fuddruckers in the last fiscal year and closed the same amount. They also rebranded some of their Cheeseburger and Paradise stores to Fuddruckers over the last few years. They closed two Luby's cafeterias, so they continue to shrink. But that cash tightness that you've talked about is something that shows up in their annual capital investment. During fiscal year 2016, they spent less in terms of capital investment than in any year since 2011 when they were rebounding out of a recession. So an interesting fact there for Luby's overall is that they're not putting a lot of money in. However, they did mention during their latest release that they own about half of their locations, and should they decide to exit certain markets, they can free some of that capital up. Well, the chocolate story we promised you, there's a new product on U.S. shelves this week as Mondelez International begins its rollout of a product designed to appeal both internationally and in the United States. This product is a line of chocolate bars as well as one type of snack mix that features Milka chocolates. It's very popular in Europe, South America, and parts of Asia. It's also distributed on a limited basis in the U.S. features Milka chocolate and Oreo cookies. And I think the most interesting part of this is Mondelez is trying to get back into the check stand area, back into the impulse buy area with this rollout. And they're trying to initiate the U.S. on a more grand scale to milk a chocolate. A lot of our listeners probably are familiar with Oreo, and they're trying to partner Milka with Oreo. And how they're going to do that is have the Milka Oreo Big Crunch Chocolate Candy Bar first available. Uh, a 10-ounce bar should be priced around 4 to $5. But what they're trying to do here is exactly what you said. They're trying to get at the front of the store. Mondelez is trying to have a bigger brand presence, and they're really trying to boost sales both domestically and internationally. They said Milka has been a very big product in some European markets for quite some time, and they think that that excitement around Milka can transfer to the U.S. and international markets markets quite easily. Milka was launched in China in September. So I did mention one of the products here. The other two that they're going to be partnered with Oreo on is the Milka Oreo chocolate candy bar, a nougat of Oreo cream with bits of cookies mixed in, all surrounded by Milka chocolate. That price point is going to be a little bit lower than the crunch candy bar that I first mentioned that has that four to five dollar price point. The Milka Oreo Choco Mix Snack Bag features Oreo mini sandwich cookies, golden Oreo mini sandwich cookies, and Milka chocolate candy buttons and candy-coated pieces. It's going to have a six-ounce bag for around $3.69. 
If you're a chocolate lover, this is probably going to be a product for you. Just having something that's milka covered is probably going to entice consumers to at least try it. But I am curious to see its long-term sustainability. As a lot of people have noted, there has been a lot of excitement in these Chinese markets, and they said they are going to be expanding these product lines out internationally, and they hope to see sales increase over the next few quarters. But the company is a privately held company, so we won't get too close to sales figures related to this product rollout. However, it is interesting that they are doing this after Halloween. I would typically think that a product rollout such as this, they would try to take advantage of those increased consumer sales in the candy category, at least towards the end of the year. But this is going to be a good product rollout for them if they are able to get more brand recognition at the front of the store. Currently, they own a lot of other brands that you might be familiar with. Newton's, Nutter Butter, Ritz, Nilla Wafers, Nabisco. And Cadbury eggs are just some of the other brands that they carry. And a lot of those don't really have that check stand penetration. Chips Ahoy is another brand that Mondelez markets. Oreo snack sizes are just about the only item they have in most check stand areas or in the front of store areas right now. Elsewhere, you've got to find them in the cookie or cracker aisle as far as their products are concerned. So I think that could be a positive impact going forward for Mondelez International because as we talked about about a month ago on the Food Focus podcast, again, the number one source of revenue in the confectionery industry is from chocolate. And a lot of that chocolate comes from front of store point-of-sale purchases, and that's an area where Mondelez is really lacking behind in their chocolate-related items. So they might be making a market share play, trying to grab market share away from brands like Nestle, Hershey, and M&M and Mars, who have a lot of that market penetration already in the United States. As far as the product rollout, there's a limited current product rollout, as I mentioned earlier. As of November 14th, so earlier this week, some consumers will be able to find these products at certain Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, and ShopRite stores throughout the country. Supposedly, if there are no errors, if nothing bad happens to the product line, the entire line, all three products, will roll out nationwide in January 2017, at least in the United States. And again, they have an interest, it would appear, based on the quotes in their releases surrounding this product and pushing this product internationally as well. Irene Rosenfeld, the chairman and CEO of Mondelez, said back in October that this product would allow them to kind of compete for market share across multiple platforms and they're very concerned with revenue growth in what they call a challenging macroeconomic environment so here they are looking at perhaps cross-platform sales making oreo popular in europe and asia and south america more popular than it is currently and making milka more popular in the u.s domestically because if milka generates some popularity domestically this might give them more of a foothold in some of those front of store products well we go from chocolate to soda there were several measures over the past few weeks that enabled a soda tax that will take place in six more U.S. cities thanks to several ballot measures. Voters voted on several tax measures that would increase the price of soda. This is going to be handed down from the distributor in parts of the country. Taxis will soon be levied on supermarkets and restaurants in the Chicago area, Cook County, moreover, San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado, 
Oakland and Albany, California. Also, Philadelphia, which passed in June, should be implementing their tax in about January of 2017. If you look at the history of the soda tax, we have talked about it a little bit on the Food Focus podcast in the past. Several studies have said that Soda consumption does decrease by about 20% once a tax is imposed. The only city they have really good data on is Berkeley, California, which passed a similar soda tax measure about two years ago. A university study showed that in Berkeley, soda consumption dropped about 21% since imposing the tax, whereas other cities during the same time period saw a 4% increase. So there is still a lot of argument as to how this is going to happen and what effect this is going to have on a lot of local businesses. As for what it means in these cities, Chicago will see a one cent per ounce increase in soda, as well as all of the California cities mentioned. Philadelphia, when implemented in January, will see a 1.5 cent per ounce tax, and Boulder will see a whopping two cents per ounce tax that a lot of business owners have said will actually double the cost of soda. So a lot of restaurant and bar owners are not pleased about this. 54% of voters in Boulder voted yes. So you can see that this was a very close ballot measure in Boulder, saying that about half of the people said this would be a bad thing for the local economy, and half of the people said this would be a good thing in terms of public health. In a somewhat odd turn of events, the American Beverage Association said in a statement, we respect the decision of the voters in these cities, and our energy remains squarely focused on reducing sugar consumed from beverages overall. This is actually kind of a turn from what they were saying earlier this year. We know that there are a lot of lobbyists that are saying that this is going to be bad for these local economies and that really we should leave it up to the consumers as to what they want to consume. And I think this is going to be playing out in the years to come as you see more of these ballot measures enter in on these general election cycles. I'm anxious to see the turnout from these soda taxes for two different reasons. One is somewhat of a restaurant nerd reason, and that is because I feel like this will actually make a positive impact on top-line revenue for restaurants in these particular areas. So get this. The one study that we have that Leighton mentioned showed that Berkeley has dropped soda consumption by 21%. Let's assume that 20% number is about the same across the board. You're looking at a $0.02 per ounce tax in Boulder, a $0.01 per ounce tax in Philadelphia. Now, this tax is actually imposed on the distributors. It's not up to restaurateurs or stores to actually collect in most of these circumstances. So what ends up happening is even if consumption falls by 20%, what you might see in Boulder, what you might see in other areas is restaurant top line revenue increasing slightly because that 20% decrease isn't enough to offset the doubling of the overall price of soda. So it will look good on the ledger for restaurants, even if it's going to cut down on restaurant margins in the long run. It may have the effect of inflating that top line revenue. The second reason I'm anxious to see how this deal turns out is basically where do you draw the line and where do you stop in the future in terms of drink taxes? Now, If you tax soda, in most circumstances, this is basically any soda product, but you could make the argument that perhaps a soda product that is sweetened with stevia is not as damaging as a soda product sweetened with sugar. Now, again, we're not nutritionists, we're not dietitians, 
any of that. But if you make that argument, then perhaps you should make the argument as well that the stevia-based beverages shouldn't be taxed at the same rate as the sugar-based beverages. So you have this difference here. And what's more, in a lot of these cities, things like sweet tea or bottled sweet tea isn't taxed when those products have just as much sugar as the sodas do. So there's a large amount of wiggle room here. And what you might end up seeing in restaurants, a circumstance like iced tea, for example, being sold to consumers over soda because it would actually be offered at a cheaper price point without the soda tax. So will that increase tea consumption? And how does this affect companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi who have partnerships in the tea industry? So a lot of ripple effects here as we look at some of the effects from these laws, most of which will go in place early in the calendar year 2017. Now, in most of these cities, the measures, the money collected by these measures will actually go to fund public health initiatives. But one of the interesting things is in Chicago's Cook County, they'll actually use the extra funds to bridge a budget shortfall. In fact, Cook County already has a 10.25% sales tax, which rates them as one of the top sales taxes in the nation. So they're using it to patch over their finances. But most of the California cities are actually putting the money towards public health initiatives. Yeah, I really did want to talk about these tax implications really quick. It is interesting. When you look at Chicago's Cook County, they already have a $200 million shortfall. And they said by having the soda tax, they can raise approximately $221 million annually. That is a massive amount, especially when you compare it to Oakland. The Oakland mayor looked at these figures and they think currently on the given soda consumption, they can bring in between six and eight million dollars a year on this soda tax. Also, if you look at Boulder, Colorado, they think they can bring in an extra three point eight million dollars in city revenue. But they are going to be using this for special nutrition programs, at least in Oakland. In Boulder, they didn't really specify where they were going to use the funds. But it is interesting when you have a larger city like Chicago say, no, we just need this money to pay off our general budget shortfall. This is going to be interesting going forward to see if other cities are going to be using this money towards the general budget shortfalls or more public health initiatives. As it stands, now, the mayor of Santa Fe, New Mexico, said he will be looking to these programs to see if they have successful rollouts and they will be looking towards maybe implementing something similar going forward, perhaps a two cent per ounce tax imposed there that can bring in around $10.6 million, they think, for the city. Again, the Philadelphia tax will start in January of this year. The California cities will be starting in 2017, but the dates aren't exactly set. But this is something we're going to be keeping a close eye on, again, as this could have further implications all across the U.S. if these are seen as successful tax initiatives. And now on to our final news story. You know, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. I'm sure everyone in our listening audience is well aware. And we talk about food deflation very often on this podcast. So that means overall great news for those looking to spend a little less this year on staple ingredients. The American Farm Bureau Federation's 31st annual survey of classic Thanksgiving items was released on Thursday this week. 
Last year, the average cost of a dinner for 10 people was found to be about $50.11. This year, the cost for the same dinner, same dinner for 10 people, $49.87. A slight reduction of $0.24 over one year ago. That amounts to half of 1% year over year. So when you look at some of the items in this survey... The survey includes turkey, bread stuffing, sweet potatoes, rolls with butter, peas, cranberries, and pumpkin pie. Overall, turkey makes up about $22.74 of the total cost. This is based on a 16-pound turkey. Last year, a 16-pound turkey was $0.30 less. However, this survey came out based on average non-sale prices of turkey. As I looked around Kroger ads throughout the nation this week, turkeys are selling for $0.78 per pound at my local Kroger. If you go to Denver at King Supers, which is a Kroger affiliate there... They're selling for $0.69 per pound. And at Ralph's Stores, the Kroger affiliate in California, they're selling for $0.57 a pound. So that's even cheaper. That's $9.12 for a 16-pound turkey. Cuts a good $13 off of the total price. So it really is remarkable, even though on the surface it appears to be a $0.24 reduction or half of 1% reduction year over year. That doesn't include a lot of the sale prices, which this year appear to be a little bit lower on loss leaders like turkeys for grocery stores. Yeah, and that brings up how this survey is conducted. They used 148 volunteer shoppers at grocery stores in 40 states, so they really are trying to get a wide range of prices. And then look at the average of those prices to give and relay these numbers here. But overall, they are not going to these sales and promotions. They are getting only full-priced items. They are getting the prices on items that are the lowest cost overall, though. So if you're looking at several brands here, some of the name brands are going to be a little more than your off-price brand, and they're getting these off-price brands here for the purpose of the survey. But again, no sales are included with this. This is really astounding to me. If you can get a meal for under $50, well under $50, if you use some of the promotions in your own area. So this is interesting in that there is a one half of 1% reduction year over year, as you mentioned. But really, if you can get a whole meal for 10 for under $40, including the price of a 16 pound turkey, that is just astounding. They cited in this study that milk prices have actually been at the lowest point since 2009. This is a really low level for milk. Milk is actually an input with several of these items, namely pumpkin pie. So this is one of the reasons they included this in the study. This is interesting, too, in that if you look at the biggest price increases from 2015 to 2016, you're going to see the biggest price increase come in the form of the rolls. A 12-pack of rolls was, on average, 21 cents higher than it was last year. Pie shells were 12 cents higher and cranberries were actually 10 cents higher than they were in 2015. So it is interesting to see the dynamic here because you're seeing a lot of items such as milk, such as turkey and other items such as sweet potatoes coming in a little lower. However, you're seeing some items come in a little bit higher. But on average, you are going to be spending a little less this year than you would have last year. The prices remained around the $49 price point for a meal for 10 over the past five years or so. I did a little bit of digging though, since this study is 31 years old, the biggest cost increase was seen between 2010 and 2011. So after the recession, cost increased 
from $43 a meal to around $49 a meal, and then stayed at that, again, $49 price point for quite some time. Adjusted for inflation, the true cost of a Thanksgiving dinner is almost identical to the cost in 1990. This is something else that I found very interesting. You can kind of look at the graph here for the cost of the Thanksgiving dinner and really see where the big points of inflation are. I found that to be quite amusing, really. You see the Great Recession really have an impact on the cost of a Thanksgiving meal. So it is interesting as we come up on this time of the year to see how these costs, this food deflation that we we've talked about for quite some time really does affect the common consumer and really does have a pronounced effect for these big meals and big times of the year. I found it interesting that cranberries were actually up 10 cents, so up slightly over last year. Most cranberries this year are actually coming from northern Wisconsin, which you usually think of those as a northeastern United States fruit. But you see the other fruits and vegetables decrease slightly in terms of price. You look at the five to six biggest states for pumpkin production, Illinois, California, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and New York actually top pumpkin producers. Other than California, the other five states have seen favorable rain patterns for pumpkins this year. So they expect pumpkin production to be high. That's one of the reasons why you're seeing a decline in price for pumpkins. That And it was an unfavorable growing year for pumpkins one year ago. The same thing could be said of peas and sweet potatoes as well. A lot of those regions that grow those particular products had pretty good growing years. Well, we finish up this week's Food Focus podcast. Leighton and I will each tell you about one food product that's new to the world of food that we tested out. And and Leighton, I hear you tested something that was based on a recommendation from me. Yeah, that's right. You actually ended up telling me that you had tried this before after I told you I had just bought a case of it. This case was of Califia Farms Double X Espresso Cold Brew Coffee. And this is actually with almond milk instead of contemporary milk that is used in other brands. But this is actually what caught my eye. The fact that it's soy-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, and free of GMOs. And so it really caught my eye. Not only that, it was on clearance at my local store. Supermarket. So I was able to get a case of about eight small bottles for $5. This was a really good deal in my eyes. And to be honest with you, I really did enjoy the taste of it. I am someone who really tries to avoid dairy products overall. And this was actually quite fitting in that I've been trying a lot of coffee products as of late. I actually just started drinking coffee about three to four months ago. And so I wanted to try something new, something that was of the cold brew style. We keep talking about cold brew here on the podcast with places like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks trying their own versions. So this really was a good deal. In fact, I will be buying potentially the full price version when I go to the supermarket next week. I think if you look at Califia Farms overall, they really have built in some good brand recognition. And I really like the styling of the product. The small container that I had only had around 150 milligrams of caffeine and 110 calories. However, the fat content was quite interesting in that it had 4.5 grams of fat, despite the fact it was dairy-free. But overall, I would give this product an A+. And I do thank you for having recommended this product for me. Not a problem. I actually tried two things this week. The first thing I tried was the rolled chicken tacos that came out at Taco Bell. It's interesting, you know, for a fried product, they don't pack much of a caloric punch 
For two tacos, it comes to 270 calories, 13 grams of fat, and 28 grams of protein. So in terms of the health front, you're not looking at an astounding amount there uh, that you might think in terms of saturated fat. However, the actual taste of the product left something to be desired. They use the same shredded chicken that they do in their shredded chicken burrito, but somehow the flavor just was not there. In addition, the tacos had some sort of crispy outer coating above and beyond just the tortilla, like it had been rolled in fine cornmeal or something like that. It all led to a fairly flavorless experience, honestly, which is not something you usually say about Taco Bell in the fast food segment. They do serve it with a cup of dipping sauce. I chose the guacamole, and honestly, I think there are probably other vehicles for guacamole I would have rather used. So I can't say I'd recommend that. But one thing I did try that I would like to recommend is from Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri. They came out with something a little bit new this year. It was a limited rollout last year, but they have a scotch ale. It's called Snow and Tell. It is a seasonal offering, and it is an oak-aged scotch ale. Now, this scotch ale is a little bit less heavy than your typical Scottish-style ales that you might be used to from the Midwest or Colorado. You look at Founders Dirty Bastard and Old Chub from Oscar Blues as being two examples of the style. But because it is a little bit lighter, it is sessionable. And I found that the oak aging took a little bit of the harshness of some of the peat and wintergreen flavors that sometimes you get from a scotch ale. So overall, I think it's excellent. It's something that I would certainly consider bringing to a holiday gathering or something of that nature. It runs about 6.3% alcohol by volume. And on Beer Advocate, the score is good. I'm surprised it's actually not higher. It sits at 82 at Beer Advocate, and I would actually rate it a little bit higher than that on a scale of 100. There is a quick news item I wanted to mention about Boulevard this week. They announced that for the second consecutive year, if you're in the Midwest, they'll actually be distributing their early riser beer coming up in January, and they'll be distributing that January through March. Their early riser beer is a coffee porter brewed with coffee from Maps Coffee Roasters up in Lenexa, Kansas. So I want to give Vincent and those guys up at Maps Coffee Roasters and Velo Plus Bike Shop a big congratulations because that is an excellent collaboration, and I actually bought a ton of that beer last year and enjoyed every drop of it. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Food Focus podcast. Again, you can check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus. Also, if you haven't done so already, if you're not familiar with it, be sure and tune in for our Retail Focus podcast that drops every Wednesday. You can follow that on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcast delivery service. For Leighton, I'm Trent, and so long until next week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.